Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mercy House. Glad you're here. Today we are continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of Matthew. And as Donnell just read, we're going to be looking at um, Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles because we're going to be going uh, pretty much verse by verse through there. It'll be helpful to you if you can follow along with what I'm saying. With that said, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you that we get to open up your word this morning. Thank you we get to hear your word preached. Thank you we get to sing your word as we're gathered here. Thank you we get to do this. And as Donnell asked, I ask, we ask as well in agreement that you would be here in a way that empowers us to understand you better in a way that we are changed and in a way that we are changed to to know you more clearly, more accurately, and to serve you more effectively, God, that we would be able to obey better because of what you say in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15, Lord. And in particular, God, would you move us to see you for who you truly are, and that that would result for us in us proclaiming to others who you are. In your name we pray, amen. So, an outline of what this paragraph that we're looking at consists of. Mission, method, and consequence. Mission, method, and consequence. In verses 5 to 8, the first sentence of verse 8, that's the mission laid out. What is their mission? What are they supposed to do? So the mission that they're supposed to do, what are they to do? And then in verses 8 to 14, the second half of verses 8 to 14, the method of the mission. How are they supposed to do it? How are they supposed to do it? And then in verse 15, there's the consequence, the consequence of rejecting their mission. So that's where we're going today. Before we dive in to the text itself, though, some, some initial notes just to, to mark as we dive in here. This is the first organized missionary send-off in the book of Matthew. John the Baptist has been a sort of missionary walking around telling people, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Jesus himself has been one as well. But this is the first group mission in the book of Matthew so far. And although they might not know it yet, the disciples might not know this yet, but the mission that Jesus sends them on here is actually a temporary one. What I mean is that this is not what their ministry will look like permanently. His instructions to them later on will change. These won't be their permanent instructions. Why do I say that? Luke chapter 22 actually says this pretty explicitly. Luke twenty two thirty five. 35, it says, And Jesus said to them, his disciples, When I sent you out with no money bag or no knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? That's a reference to this send-off here in Matthew 10. They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, and here it is, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me 
has its fulfillment. What does this mean? Once Jesus dies, some of the instructions will change for the disciples. Some of the instructions will change. So not all of these commands in Matthew chapter 10 are binding for us today in the same way that they were for the disciples in that moment. These commands are specifically for the disciples' first missionary endeavor. And I'll point out which of those commands get updated and what the significance of that is as we go verse by verse. But that's something that I think is worth noting before we dive in here. Not only because it's true, but also because I've seen a misuse of this passage before in my lifetime, in my ministry, that I think would be corrected pretty easily if we rightly understood the temporary nature of these particular commands. I've heard people say to me, you know, Alden, I'm just doing the Jesus thing. I'm going from place to place. I never know where I'll end up. I got no job. I'm not bringing anything with me. I'm just traveling. I'm just doing what Jesus did. And that's like, fine, I've done this myself, and I've provided a similar argument. For those who don't know, I used to live in a minivan, so I can tell you stories about that later. But for now, I I was one of those kinds of people, and it's fun to do that. But I I would love, and I would do this in a goofy way a little bit, but I would love quoting the passage, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm just cruising, you know? But, uh, so I was a little bit, like, playful when I would say that, but in a sense, myself and people like me would basically be saying, man, I'm jobless, aimless, I got nothing to my name, I'm totally happy about it, I must be just like Jesus. You know, unfortunately for several years ago, me, spontaneity is not inherently divine. Godly living does not necessarily look like purposefully having no income, no plan for housing, and no travel supplies. These instructions are temporary for the disciples. I mean, if we're going to say that these are permanent instructions, then we're going to have to say that only, the only people group we're allowed to evangelize are Jews. As we proceed through this sermon passage, though, we're going to see that that's not the case. So anyway, I wanted to mention that at the beginning. These are temporary commands. That's the, that's the main point of what I'm trying to say here. With that said, though, although some of the commands are temporary, as we proceed through chapter 10, there are permanent principles that are lasting throughout the Christian life as well. For example, Jesus warns the disciples, and by extension, he warns us that there will be challenges to the Christian life. There will be persecution, even familial division. That is an ongoing reality that Jesus warns us about. There are also encouragements. Have no fear. I care for you. The hairs of your head are numbered. We're going to see that as well. There are also promises. You'll be rewarded in heaven for loving me, Jesus says. So there are permanent principles for us. Don't get me wrong but we shouldn't use these specific instructions as necessarily normative and binding for us today. With that said, let's see how Jesus sends out his first group of missionaries. So at the point in our outline, we're at the part mission. What are they to do? Starting in verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So, the idea here is to go to the people of Israel and to not go to other people groups. Gentiles and Samaritans, as you may know, 
were not Jewish people. They were not Israelites, strictly speaking. And Jesus says, don't go to them, go to the Jewish people. Now, when it reads, go nowhere among the Gentiles, that's a very legitimate translation. I'll offer you a super literal one. Do not go into a road of the Gentiles, or do not go into a way of the Gentiles is another way that you could render that sentence. And I point this out, not as a corrective or something like that, it's a, it's a good translation, but to point out that they're in Galilee right now already. Galilee is a region that consists of both Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus is not telling them, do not go to a place where Gentiles might happen to be. If that were the case, Galilee itself, their current location, would itself be disqualified. In other words, Jesus is saying, do not seek out Gentiles on this mission. Rather, seek out Israelites. Go to Israelites. Do not go to Gentiles. Okay, but we, we, a lot of us know that later on in Jesus' mission, in the Christian endeavor, Gentiles are explicitly part of the mission, right? The great conclusion to the book of Matthew is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples where? of all nations, of all people groups, right? Jews and Gentiles. So that's where we're headed even in chapter 10, a future mission that includes Gentiles is anticipated in this chapter. The, in the very next paragraph, Tommy will cover this next week, Jesus prepares them to face opposition. And this is what he says in chapter uh, 10, verse 17. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. So he's preparing them for persecution. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To do what? To do what? to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, and the Gentiles. Even here, when Jesus sends them on an initial first mission exclusively to Jews, he's preparing them later on to witness to Gentiles. They will bear witness to Gentiles. So, we know that the future of their mission is to both Jews and Gentiles. A question that we might rightly ask is, so why no Gentiles right now? Why no Gentiles right now? Jesus wants his ministry to go first to the Jewish people, and only then to go to all the nations, all the people groups. Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. The, the word Messiah means Savior, Deliverer. The Old Testament is filled with promises, as you know, of the Messiah who would come to redeem Israel, who would come to rule Israel, who would come for Israel. There are numerous passages. I'll list a couple off here. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And then in chapter 3, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. The Messiah is coming to Israel. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Jeremiah 23, 5 is another one. Zechariah 12, 10, just to name a few. There are many, many, many. The point is, he's Israel's Messiah, right? The Old Testament is largely a narrative about the Israelites, God's people of the Old Testament. But Israel's Messiah, and here's the, the key, 
Israel's Messiah is also the Messiah to all the nations, not just Israel. Matthew 12, 17 quotes Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, part of which reads, He will proclaim just, justice to the Gentiles. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. Israel's Messiah is not the Messiah only to Israel. Israel's Messiah is the Messiah to all the nations. But Jesus will start with Jews and not start with Gentiles to show that he is indeed the Messiah to Israel as he promised. And that's why he comes first to Israel and then to Gentiles. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God to salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes. Here it is. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So first the Jews, but then the Gentiles, as per all the promises of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus' first organized mission goes first to Jews, and then later to the nations in Matthew 28. The same pattern is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus commissions out his uh, 12 apostles once he has been resurrected. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, that's Jewish land, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, that's non-Jewish territory. And that's how the pattern of the book of Acts proceeds from there. First, the Holy Spirit comes to Jewish people and then to all the nations. So this is the pattern in the New Testament, and Jesus is holding to it here. One of the major themes, here's why this is significant. One of the major themes in the book of Matthew is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. The fulfillment of Old Testament promises. The fact that Jesus sends the disciples first to Israel is the fulfillment of those Old Testament promises to Israel. And that's significant for us. Because if God is faithful to keep his promises to Israel, who, as we read the Old Testament, were a very disobedient people, then God is faithful to keep his promises to us, also a fairly disobedient people, myself included. That's not a condemnation to you. I'm included in that. I'm part of a disobedient people. I'm a disobedient person. But God is faithful to keep his promises to us. We've seen him fulfill his promises to Israel, in particular in this passage in Matthew. But here are some promises that he makes to us that we can be certain that God keeps. James 1.5, if you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to you. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God promises that you can endure your temptation, and he promises to give you opportunities to do so. Romans 8.38, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God promises us that nothing can separate us from him. 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God promises you that. You will find rest for your soul. How about Revelation 21, 4? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what Jesus promises us, that heaven will be. And John 12, 3, another promise about heaven. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In many ways, that's the ultimate promise, that we get to be with Jesus, and we will be. And it is sure because God keeps his promises. Indeed, 2 Corinthians 1.20 is true, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Jesus has been faithful to keep his promises and he is faithful to keep his promises to you and to me. Let's look at verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as you go, that is while they are traveling there to proclaim it. It's not a once you get there, you can start, once you've set up shop kind of a thing. No, they proclaim even in their travels. They are, they are to spread the word and proclaim it as they travel. And this is what they are to proclaim. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. The NIV and others render this, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, this is it. The kingdom's at hand. The kingdom has come. Here it is. God's kingdom, which he has promised to Israel and to the whole world, has arrived. Those promises are now being proclaimed to the streets of Galilee. By the way, this message that they're instructed to proclaim is the same message that John the Baptist and Jesus have already proclaimed earlier in the book of Matthew. Chapter 3, verse 1 John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A chapter later, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus says the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same phrase that the disciples are now instructed to say themselves. Last week, we talked about how the disciples are invited to do what Jesus did. They're invited to do what Jesus did. And this is an example of that. They are saying what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You may wonder where the call to repent is. John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Now the disciples are called to proclaim the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Where did the repentance go? We're going to see that in just a little while in this sermon passage. So hold that for now. But for now, for our sakes, for us today, this call to proclaim is very much our call. We are called to proclaim. This is one of those items that is not a temporary command, but one that remains for us. 
although this is a, there is a lot of temporary aspects to this missionary endeavor that they, the 12 disciples are embarking on, proclamation remains a crucial element of Christian life for us, among many other passages we could look at. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says something about this. Notice the purpose of our salvation in this passage. Notice the purpose of our salvation. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, you belong to God. You belong to God, right? Why? What's the purpose? This isn't the only purpose, but it is a purpose. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are gods so that we would, pro we, we belong to God, not we are God. <laughs> Apostrophe S, if you will. That got me. Okay. We, pro we, are, we proclaim. We belong to God for what purpose? That we would proclaim to people about him and his kingdom. Let's proclaim. Let's proclaim. Proclaiming is not just walking around the streets of Galilee saying verbatim, the kingdom of heaven's at hand, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. I mean, it includes that, but let's, what can that look like for us? Let's, let's tell people about God's excellence. First Peter 2, 9, proclaim the excellencies of him. Let's tell people about why God's excellent. Let's tell people that's proclamation. What is excellent about God to you? From, from your perspective, what is excellent about God? How has God been excellent to you? How has God been good to you? How has he shown himself to be excellent in your life? That's your testimony. Proclaim it. Tell people about God who is excellent to you. This can look like a number of things. Proclaiming whether to non-believers or to believers. In other words, this can look like discipleship or evangelism, proclaiming to believers or non-believers. To non-believers, maybe it looks like, and we've done this before, walking around the streets of Amherst, coming up to random people and telling them about Jesus, offering to pray for them, inviting them to church, giving them Bibles. That's something we've done before. We could, we could grow in that as well. Again, I, I don't say that in a condescending way. In a lot of ways, I'm in charge of doing stuff like that, and I, I've only done it once this past semester. I'm part of that weakness that we as a church experience. But in some ways, chapter 9, verse 35, renders that understandable, not necessarily excusable, but understandable. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. We're shorthanded. We can't do everything right. So our, this weak spot is understandable. I, I, I hope you don't hear me condemning or judging or something like that, but it's, this is worth us growing in, I think, Mercy House, and I'm, I'm talking mostly to myself here. But let's, let's go tell random people in the streets about God. That's worth doing. Let's proclaim. But if not street evangelism, and that's not all proclamation looks like, how about just purposefully spending time with a non-Christian friend so that you can find opportunities to talk to them about God? That's proclaiming. That's proclaiming or proclaiming to other believers. Whether we spend time together in Sunday service, or whether we go to midweek Bible study, or we join servant teams, whether AV, Mercy House Kids, the welcome team, the deacon team, the elder team, you name it, like, all of those teams are ways that we can proclaim God's kingdom, and where we can help one another as a church 
function to proclaim as a body God's kingdom. It also includes discipleship relationships, which we talked about last week, and so I won't belabor that very much here. If you're interested in talking about discipleship, learning about discipleship, I recommend you listen to that message on our website. But discipleship and evangelism, those two components, that is how God's church will grow. Those are the means. Preaching, discipleship, and evangelism, for our purposes, for our sermon here, discipleship and evangelism, proclamation, proclamation. I remember when Tommy got voted in as lead pastor, he said something that pumped me up. He said, let's take this city. We were, at, we were at a summit meeting. I don't know if you guys remember him saying that. Now, so we had gone through the interim period. There'd been some turbulence during that time, as some of you know, and that was challenging in its own way. And then he said, let's, let's turn the corner and let's take the city. And I, I want us to do that. that. That pumps me up. Let's take Amherst. Yeah, for Jesus. How are we going to do that? By proclaiming. And how are we going to proclaim by discipling each other and by evangelizing our town. That's how we're going to take our city. That's how Mercy House is going to have a lasting impact in this area, in Amherst, in the Pioneer Valley, in the United States, in the world, by proclaiming via discipleship and evangelism. I mean, it's 10, 20, 30, 100-year impact. Let's disciple people and let's evangelize people. Let's proclaim to one another within these walls, and to others who are outside of them, to invite them in. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. This is the last item of what the mission consists of, what they're to do. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. In verse 7, they are instructed to say what Jesus said, right? The kingdom of heaven's at hand. That's what Jesus said. And now they are instructed to do what Jesus did. Healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, and casting out demons. All of these miracles are miracles Jesus has already done in the book of Matthew. And these miracles, in fact, demonstrate that the kingdom has indeed arrived. These, are a, these miracles are, a, among other things, is not all they are, but they are a kind of evidence or a validation of the kingdom indeed having arrived. Miracles like these will continue throughout the book of Matthew, and they're often going to be associated with proclamations about Jesus, just like these miracles here in verse 8 are associated with proclamation in our passage. In verse 7, proclaim, and then verse 8, perform miracles. Throughout Scripture, miracles serve to validate God's messengers and to validate God's message, and that is the case here as well. Of course, that's not the only purpose, though. This is, after all, a restoring ministry, as many of the uh, preachers have mentioned before, and that's right. This is a restoring ministry. Miracles exist to restore us. I mean, isn't that the miracle of salvation, to restore us to God? But these miracles are restoring health, heal the sick, restoring life from death, raise the dead, restoring people to be free from demons, cast out demons. These are restorative miracles. Now, one item on this list that may surprise us, and I imagine it surprised the disciples as well, raise the dead. He just drops it in there. Raise the dead. Look, we've seen this happen already in the Gospel of Matthew. We will see it again. When Jesus dies on the cross, 
In chapter 27, verse 52, the tombs will be open and the bodies of the saints will rise and make themselves known to other people in the town. Resurrection happens in the gospel of Matthew. It happens afterwards in Acts as well at the hands of the disciples, the very people that Jesus is now empowering with that ability. In Acts chapter 9, Peter raises Tabitha from death to life. In Acts chapter 20, Paul raises Eutychus from death to life after he fell out of a window. Resurrection from the dead was a consistent theme in Jesus' ministry in the New Testament. At the same time, in the Bible, throughout the Bible, people with the ability to raise the dead were not common in the Bible. People with that ability were not common. There are only, in fact, five people in Scripture who are explicitly credited anyway with that feat, with the ability to raise people from the dead. Those five are Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Five people in the entire Bible. Also, it seems that this authority over all sickness, all disease, and raising the dead was not necessarily an ongoing, consistent, unilateral ability that Jesus gave the apostles. A few passages to think about this with. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. Timothy apparently has some kind of stomach illnesses. Paul instructs him, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This healing is done by medicinal purposes, wine, not necessarily a healing miracle. How about 2 Timothy 4.20? This is Paul writing to Timothy here. Erastus remained at Corinth, and here it is, I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. So Paul, who is himself an apostle, left one of his fellow missionaries because he was sick. He didn't heal him. He didn't heal him. This sounds a little different to me than the mission that these disciples are now embarking on where they are given, quote, every, they are giving authority to heal, quote, every disease and every affliction. It is true that Jesus gives the apostles that authority here for this particular mission, but later in the apostles' ministry, they don't seem to exercise the same power. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us I think it means something similar to what it meant for the apostles later on in their ministry after this initial mission. It may well happen. Maybe this is a wake-up call. Maybe this is a sobering moment. Maybe this is a whoa moment. It may well happen that we pray for someone to raise from the dead and it happens. That may well happen. I believe that can happen. Just like we pray for healing and it happens. God answers those prayers. I think God absolutely can raise people from the dead today, and we should be open to that happening today, and we should not be closed off to praying prayers like that. However, we should not be confused into thinking that we are in the same position that the apostles were in this unique mission. Hebrews 11.35, I think, summarizes this idea. Women received their dead by resurrection. Just straight, there it is. Some were tortured, though, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. In other words, there's a lot that that passage means for our purposes here. Sometimes people were raised from the dead, and we need to accept that. I think that might be the big push for us. Like, can that happen today? Yes, it can. But we also must accept that we are in a different place than the apostles were on this particular mission as well. So, with that said, 
Let's move to the next portion of our outline. We've talked about the mission. What, what are they to do? What are they to do? Now we're going to talk about the method of that mission. How are they to do this? And we're going to start in verse 8, in the second sentence of verse 8, to talk about the method of the mission. You received without paying, Jesus says. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Jesus did not charge them when he discipled them. He didn't, he didn't give them a, a fee for his mentorship. And he expects the disciples to now go and do likewise. Verse 9, basically, do not receive payment, right? Verse 10, don't take a bag for your journey. Normally, when people go on a journey, they do take a bag, right? I mean, it's helpful to have some spare stuff. Don't take two tunics. In other words, don't bring a, a spare pair of clothes for this multi-day journey, or sandals, don't bring a spare pair of shoes either, or a staff. Now, in that culture, in that context, it would have been standard for travelers to carry a staff, mostly for protection against thieves and barbarians on the roads and such. But they're not to bring protection either. They're not to bring money or make money. They're not to pack any extra things. They're not to bring any provisions for themselves. They should walk through Galilee, proclaiming that the kingdom has arrived and performing these restorative miracles. And they should rely on the hospitality of those who are receptive to their mission, mission to sustain them, to give them their food, which we'll see in uh, the next couple of verses. This is generally not how ministry will be conducted later in Jesus' plan. This is another temporary aspect to this specific mission. Paul will fundraise to go on mission trips, Philippians 4.15, and Paul basically says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, those who labor for the gospel should get paid for their work, he will go on to say. So future missions will not always look like this, but for now, this is another way in which these disciples are doing what Jesus did. Matthew 8.20, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't have a place where he would sleep every night, and they are imitating him now on this temporary mission. They're not bringing provisions for themselves. They're not even getting paid. They're just going out and proclaiming, and that is literally all they're doing. Verse 11, and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. So, as they are going and proclaiming, they should look for people who are sympathetic to their message. And then they should stay with those people. Once they find a place, they should stay in that place, though, until they go to a different town. So, while on the one hand it is a traveling ministry in the sense that they're going from town to town, once they're in a town, they stay in the same place. The reasons for this command to stay in the same house are not explicit, but a couple of advantages that might have, um, that might have been beneficial to this method. One is they're not spending all their time traveling and finding places to stay. Once they find a place, they can just focus on ministry. This is a focused ministry, presumably a quick one where they go from town to town, evangelize, and then go to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one. Quick turnover here. So they want to focus on their ministry work, but also... They're not looking for the nicest possible accommodations. They will be content with what they have. It may even be good for public image because outsiders see others who exploit their positions of religious authority. That was the standard in that cultural climate. 
But then they look at the disciples and they see that they're content with simply food and shelter, not even getting paid. They're only receiving food. Verse 10, the laborer deserves his food. That's what they, that's the sustenance that they have, food and shelter, not even pay. And it is expected that they will depart from each town or village and at some point go proclaim to the next town or village and perform miracles there as well. Whatever town or village you enter, stay there until you depart, verse 11 says. The expectation of this particular mission is that they will go to many different places to spread the news. Of course, all the while, as we mentioned, focusing on Israelites, but this is a fast-paced, spreading the news kind of message, kind of mission. Some missions now, you need to post up and establish a base of operations and stay there many, many years. And that's right. Paul and the disciples do that in the book of Acts. So that's, that's totally allowable. That's an update. It's allowable to not go from village to village really quickly. But this was their mission then. Verse 12 continues. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. For all of my Christian life, until Thursday, I have never understood verses 12 to 13. I've, just, I've had some confusion, and I think God showed it to me on Thursday. I'm really excited to show this to you, but this has nagged at me. Here's been my confusion. Verse 12, read this with me for a moment. As you enter the house, greet it. Of course. Of course I'm going to, I mean, imagine this, ready? I walk into a house of strangers and I don't greet it? No way, you know, so this has been my confusion. And then verse 13, in what sense does my peace return to me? I just have no concept of like offering peace and then experiencing it return. What is it? So that was, that was my confusion. Maybe you share that. Maybe you share that now that I've shared that. But I think we can resolve it together as well. Here's what's going on. There was some, there was, there, here's an important piece of cultural context that I think really sheds light on what's going on here. When people in, the, in ancient Palestine would greet each other, what they would say to each other would be shalom, peace, shalom, peace. Much like you and I would say today, how are you? That was the, that's the standard greeting today. That was their standard greeting them. Shalom, peace. So on this mission, when the disciples greet people, peace to you, shalom, it's not just a standard greeting for them in this mission anymore. No, when they greet people, they are in fact declaring peace and offering peace to them when they say peace to you in their standard greeting. They are proclaiming the good news of peace. Ephesians 6.15 describes the gospel as, quote, the gospel of peace. They are literally offering peace to people as they greet people, you see? If these people are worthy, that is, if they receive Jesus' message, in other words, if they are worthy of the peace that the disciples offer, then the peace that they offered will rest on them. And that peace is both a greeting and good news. The peace of the gospel will rest on them. If they are not worthy, if they reject Jesus' message, if they are not worthy of the peace that the disciples offer, then the disciples declare that there is in fact no peace in this house. 
And then they would withdraw their declaration of peace, moving on to the next house. The peace of the gospel will not rest on that house. That peace is withdrawn. Their greeting of peace is withdrawn. It would be something like this. Hello, how are you? I bring good news. Response, I don't want your good news. Answer, well, then I withdraw my hello, I say goodbye, and I move on. It would be kind of like that. And that sounds silly, I understand. But instead of hello, they're offering peace. So this shalom that they're initially greeting as if it were standard becomes higher stakes. This doesn't remain just an introductory, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? It doesn't stay there. It becomes ultimate. Wait, no, shalom, peace. I have real peace to offer you. That's what's going on when they go house to house. This is the call to repentance that we saw earlier. When John the Baptist and Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they would always start that sentence with repent, right? But here is how the disciples communicate the same message. There is no peace in this house if you reject the message of Jesus. That's what they're saying. There's no peace in this house if you reject the message of Jesus. That kind of a departure from the house would certainly leave the would-be host with the impression that they needed to repent. Verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. This would symbolize that the disciples are ridding themselves of these people. Imagine, I'm out of here. That's symbolic. I mean, that's like intense, right? You're laughing because it's awkward, right? Like, man, that's intense. But on this mission, if people do not receive the message, the disciples are instructed to immediately walk away and find someone who will receive this message. It's a fast-paced mission where Jesus wants the word spread out rapidly. So they need to find people who will receive the message favorably so that those people who are sympathizers will themselves go spread the word and the disciples can go to the next town and do it all over again. This is the method of their mission. This is another temporary command, by the way. The missionaries today are no longer required to walk away from people who initially refuse the gospel message. But that being said, shaking the dust off of one's feet after encountering non-believers and opposers, that is a consistent theme in the New Testament still. Look at the, uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, when people reject the apostles' message, they shake the dust from their feet and they go to a different place. Acts chapter 18, verse 6, people oppose uh, their message again. They shake the dust out of their garments, and they go to the next group of people. The general pattern in the New Testament is to go where people are receptive to the message, and then to walk away if they are not. That is the general New Testament pattern, and that's exactly what it is. It's a pattern. It is not a command. We're not obliged to do that like the disciples were in this passage. This command's a temporary one. How do I know that this is not a command? Because in Acts chapter 14, when people also oppose their message, they stay there in response to opposition. So it's not always the case that people walk away in the New Testament when opposition comes. So what, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? It is generally wise to spend our efforts proclaiming to people who are receptive. 
It is generally wise to do that. But there are also cases, and very important cases, where it is appropriate and even required to continue proclaiming to people who are not willing to hear and to pray that God would make them receptive and to persevere. We need to do that sometimes too. So let's do that. Let's proclaim to people. Let's prioritize those who are receptive, but also let's persevere with those who are not. That's a hard call. That's been a hard call in my life, and I'm not the most patient person, so I'm easily discouraged in that respect. But let's do that, Mercy House. Let's do that. That's worth it. Let's proclaim to people whether they are receptive or not. The last section of our outline is the last verse of our sermon text this morning. The consequence, the consequence of rejecting the mission. We've seen the mission, what they are to do, the method, how they are to do it, and the consequence now of rejecting the message. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The disciples are instructed to walk away if someone rejects Jesus' message. But for those who do, their judgment will be terrible. It will be terrible. Sodom and Gomorrah are cities in the Old Testament. We find their story in Genesis 18 and 19. They become famous for that testimony in Genesis 18 and 19 because they are notoriously wicked cities. They are so wicked that God rained down sulfur and fire to destroy them. That's a unique fate. Rained sulfur and fire to destroy them. That's how wicked they were. An example of their wickedness is found in Genesis 19, where the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, when angels visited the city disguised as men to Sodom and Gomorrah, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah tried to rape them. Apparently, that's what they did with their visitors. These were wicked places, wicked places. And so God destroyed them in an epic and massive fashion with fire and sulfur coming down out of the sky. And Jesus says that their experience, Sodom and Gomorrah's experience in punishment, will be more bearable than for those who reject the message of Jesus. Here's why. Sodom and Gomorrah did not know as much about God as those who hear about Jesus. Sodom and Gomorrah did not know as much about God as those who hear about Jesus. Rejecting Jesus when he is clearly revealed is worse than disobeying him in ignorance. Even if those ignorant deeds are very wicked, and they were, it is more wicked to reject Jesus when he is clearly revealed. Now, wicked deeds done in ignorance are still wicked deeds, and they will therefore be punished as wicked deeds. But it is more wicked to reject Jesus when you know who he truly is. Luke chapter 12 gets at this point really effectively. Luke 12, 47. That servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Okay, so you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it. That's a severe punishment. Verse 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. 
okay, so this person did not know what they were supposed to do, but they still did it wrong, and so they would still be punished, but less so than the one who knew what they were supposed to do and didn't do it on purpose. And then Luke summarizes, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Sodom and Gomorrah did not hear about Jesus specifically. But these people on the disciples' mission will hear about Jesus specifically. They will know their master's will, to use the language of Luke chapter 12. Better than anyone in salvation history so far. Nobody in the Old Testament knew who Jesus was. But these people on this mission, who received this mission, they do know because they hear about it. He is proclaimed to them. Jesus, let's back up for just a moment. Jesus is the fullest expression of who God is. Hebrews 1, 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So, if someone rejects Jesus, they reject the clearest presentation of who God is. They reject God himself, revealed most fully to them. That is a great sin, greater even than that of Sodom and Gomorrah, as bad as they were. My friends, this is a warning. This is a warning, especially to those who have heard all about Jesus but have yet to commit to following him. There are people who grow up in church all their lives. I've had friends like this. I still have friends like this. They hear about Jesus for years and years and years, but they never really follow him. They never really commit to him. Maybe when they grow up, they walk away from Christianity altogether. That was kind of something I did when I was younger, but it's not really my thing anymore. I have friends who say that still. Have you heard about Jesus? And do you still not follow him? If you can relate to that, I hope that this is a sobering moment for you. If that's you, your experience in punishment will be even worse than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day. As the people of Sodom and Gomorrah await their terrible judgment, if that's you, yours will be even worse if Jesus is revealed to you and you knowingly reject him. So I urge you, with John the Baptist, with Jesus, and with the disciples, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what Jesus died for. As you can see from our passage, there is a day of judgment coming for all of us. And Jesus died to save us from that punishment that otherwise awaits us. The thing is, we all deserve to be punished. That's true about myself, that's true about all of you, everyone. We all deserve to be punished because whether in ignorance or in knowledge, to use the framework of Luke chapter 12, we have all disobeyed our master's will. And therefore, again, using his language, we deserve the beating. In other words, we deserve the punishment from God for not obeying our master's will. But Jesus died on the cross and experienced our deserved punishment for us. 
before. And I, there have been times, past times in my life, I have qualified as someone who knew who Jesus was, heard about him all my life, and still didn't do anything about it. I still didn't follow him. I was the servant who deserved the severe beating, knowing who Jesus was and still knowingly not following him. I've been there. I have disobeyed my master. But instead of Jesus giving me the severe beating that I truly deserve, he instead receives the severe beating that I deserve on the cross. He has saved me from my deserved punishment and has received my deserved punishment so that I would not be punished like Sodom and Gomorrah will, and even worse so. If you're a Christian, this is true for you. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, Jesus took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you do this, drink it in remembrance of me. He did that for us. That's what happened on the cross, is he took the punishment that we deserve, whether light or severe, he took it that we wouldn't have to. And so now we proclaim, because we have been set free from that punishment that we did deserve otherwise. We're grateful for Jesus doing that for us, so now let's tell people about him. He's awesome. He's done that. He's taken worse than Sodom and Gomorrah for us. He is worth following. He's worth trusting, and he's worth proclaiming. So let's do that together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for taking the punishment that is ours you literally didn't deserve the punishment, but you took it for us because you love us. We thank you for that. I pray that we would look at you all the time in our lives, God. That we would just be so moved with gratitude for you taking what Sodom and Gomorrah deserved and worse for us. And you did that because you love us. You did that to save us. That's what it means that you have saved us, God. So thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. Let us be faithful to proclaim you, to go on mission for you, to be sent by you, God. And for now, let us look at what you've done on the cross, taking that severe punishment for us so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus, we are so grateful. Let us consider that you did that for us now. In your name we pray, amen.